Good afternoon, everyone. Nice seeing everybody here. Got a good crowd. Word's getting out. Keeps continuing to build, so keep letting people know. Um, if you don't have one of the cards for this ministry, right on the corner of that table, before you leave, grab one. It's got the website and the social media information, Facebook and Twitter, that kind of stuff. So those of you that are tech savvy can follow along. We've just started, obviously we video every week, so you can watch each lesson on the YouTube channel, upload the YouTube channel. Also, I've just started uploading the audio, which is why I'm recording here on my phone, uh, to SoundCloud and iTunes. So you can follow along, subscribe, that way if you miss a week, you don't miss a week. Take 30 minutes one other day and we can listen to the lesson, but it helps you. It helps me. The more subscribers, the higher up it goes. And if you like it and you want to invite people, you can actually go on iTunes and leave a little review. And star rating, all of that stuff really, really helps. So um, the, the fate of this group continues to rest in your hands. Uh, along those lines as well, please remember uh, food is always free. We just ask that you tip. Tip the kitchen staff because they work really hard in the back. And uh, Roots Chris does this out of generosity. And we're very thankful. We never want to take it for granted. Especially if we've been coming here two, three years, five, six, seven years, it's easy to take it for granted. Um, so I was up in, in the mountains this weekend, or last week at a conference for the United Methodist Church, which is where I'm a member. And when I mentioned, I had to speak there, when I mentioned that we do this every week, people were blown away. They were, oh my gosh, what? You do a Bible study at Bruce Chris? That's crazy. Who pays for it? I said, well, the owner and the people that come. Uh, they all help and they all support it. And it was really cool. So just realize how special this is and, um, and, and let people know about it. Word of mouth. Best thing to do. So we're going to jump back into Exodus. We're in chapter 17 this week. Last week, you know there's going to be pop quizzes. Last week, what happened? God provided, yes. And how did he do it specifically? Manna, yeah, what does manna mean? What is it? What is it? Yeah, what is it? That's what manna means. Literally, manhu, what, what is this? Uh, and so it was this type of grain substance, we don't know. It wasn't like God throwing out crackers or communion loaves or something like that. It was this, this stuff that they had to gather and they had to grind and they had to prepare. But it was, it was like, um, it, it was like, Bread from heaven, food. And in Hebrew, by the way, bread and food are synonymous. Like if you say, give me some food, you would say, give me some bread. So that it's not like all they ate was bread. Uh, if you're a, a gluten-free or a carb watcher, uh, that doesn't mean you just bread is holy. It just means that it's the general term of food. So in Exodus 17, Israel, let's see, verse 17, chapter 17, verse 1. The whole Israelite community, and, and in Hebrew that word is congregation. We mentioned that last week, how it, that's the word that gets translated ekklesia by the Greek translation, and that's where we get the New Testament word church. So just keep in mind, the church is not a New Testament thing. Contrary to what you might have heard, it goes as far back as the people of Israel, the congregation of Israel. That's why your church members, churches are called congregations. The whole Israelite congregation set out from the desert of sin, and that's short for Sinai. It has to do with Sinai. That means sin, like committing a sin. Set out from the desert of sin, traveling from place to place as the Lord commanded. They camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. 
So they quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. Now the word quarrel here, if you have NIV, anybody have another translation? Chide. What does it say? What did you say? Chide. Chided. They contended. Contended. That's closer. Yeah, um, the word is reeve, R-I-Y-B, or R-I-Y-V, reeve. And it means, it, it's a technical term actually. It means to bring a charge against. When you would enter into a lawsuit in ancient Israel, you would present a reeve. You would, you would quarrel with the person. And that was a way of presenting your case in their hearing. And if that didn't get resolved, then it would go to court and a judge would decide. Um, so this is not just they were grumpy or they were whiny or any of that stuff. It's they were bringing charges against Moses. They were bringing a reed. Um, so they quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. Moses replied, why do you grieve, quarrel with me? Why do you put the Lord to the test? So now this wasn't just like last time they said, we don't have any water. What are we going to do? This was, hey, we don't have any water again. Give us some. Like last time he had provided by the tree that he put in the water and it made the springs drinkable. And so so they're, they're basically saying like, hey, you know, pony up. It's time to do your thing again. We need some more water. Uh, so Moses is kind of saying, what? Whoa, whoa, what makes you think I did this last time? This is the Lord's providing here, not me. And why, why are you testing him again? Um, verse 3, but the people were thirsty for water there, and they grumbled against Moses. They said, why did you bring us up out of Egypt to make us and our children and livestock die of thirst? Then Moses cried out to the Lord, what am I to do with these people? They're almost ready to stone me. And he's not exaggerating. If, if, a, if a person was seen as guilty of committing a crime that harmed the community, the proper, in the ancient world, the proper method of getting rid of that person was almost always stoning. Where the people together would take the person and they would all either, they, usually stoning, they, they would put somebody in a pit or they'd kind of bury them up to their waist or maybe up to their neck. And then just everybody would pelt them with rocks until they were dead. It was a very visceral way of the whole community participating in putting the person to death and, and figuratively burying them. In other words, getting them out of their sight because they're a threat to the community, they're a danger to the community, or they've done something extremely um, odious in the eyes of the community. So it was a serious thing. And, and Moses, you know, the people didn't, at this point, it hadn't reached the threat level. But Moses was not totally off base thinking these people are ready to stone me. He's, he's leading, you know, 50, 100,000 people out in the wilderness with nothing to drink for months. This is the third month that they're in the desert. So um, no standing army, no police force, no nothing. It's, it's pretty scary if you actually put yourself in Moses' place. The Lord answered Moses, walk ahead of the people. Take with you some of the elders of Israel and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile and go. I will stand there before you by or upon the rock at Horeb. Strike the rock and water will come out of it for the people to drink. So God's response to this isn't to chastise the people. Again, Moses is getting upset, but God's not at this point. He's providing. They're still in their honeymoon phase. As the prophets would describe this, this time in the wilderness. 
This time where God's taking his people out away from everything and teaching them that they will depend on him. This is not the same generation that we'll read about later when Moses um, strikes the rock and, and God's angry and all that stuff. That's later in the book of Numbers, chapter 20. This, this same type of situation happens with these people's children in Numbers 20. This is the first time. And we don't get any sense of God being angry here. He's providing. He's still teaching them who he is and who they are. And, and it's like a child. You know, you're more patient with a toddler than you are with a teenager. You, you, because there's some things that you need to teach someone and you need to guide them when they're young. But when they're 14, 15, 16, and they still aren't getting that, that's when you start to lose your temper. That's when you start to get a little annoyed with it. So, yeah. Are you saying Numbers is a different story? I thought it was a recap of this story. No. Numbers is a different story. It's the next generation that takes place at Kadesh, not at Rephidim. Numbers chapter 20 is this same type of event happening again. Uh, Deuteronomy is the recap of all of this stuff. So God says, uh, take your staff, the staff that he struck the Nile with. This is important. Remember, the people have seen God exercise his judgment using this staff over the gods of Egypt and, and, and destroying Egypt's water supply. Now that same staff that struck the Nile is going to strike this rock. You're going to provide drinking water. So God's showing the God that that uh, judges is also the God that saves. The God that punishes is the God that heals. It's, it's two sides of the same point. So God's showing this part of it. And it's also really important because he says, I will go and I will stand before you at the rock. So there's, there's some undertones when Moses strikes the rock. If God's standing there, he's figuratively or theologically striking God the water is coming from God. So there's, there's a lot of early readers read this and then they, you know, mulled over the theology of scripture and Jesus talking about living water flowing from him and water coming from his side as he was pierced and all of this stuff. And they, they're kind of like, this is sort of early hints or shadows at God providing for undeserving people, even if it means him suffering a symbolic blow. And, and then later in the New Testament, we see that come to its fruition. So there may be something to that. I mean, it's, it's, the text doesn't make that explicit, but it's not, I don't think it's out of the realm of possibility of what God's doing, presenting himself. He is presenting himself as the source of the water. Not a magical rock, but himself, because he's there. Moses is using his staff, his identity, and he's bringing about this stream of water. Now look where it says. It says, uh, I'll stand uh, the rock at Horeb. Horeb is the other name for Mount Sinai. They are back where Moses originally received his call. This is important to remember. They're, they're back in the area of Mount Sinai. They're back in Midian. They're back where Moses shepherded his flock. They're not in unknown territory. <coughs> They, they, he, God said, you'll know that I've sent you when you come back and worship me at this mountain. So this is the beginning of God completing the fulfillment of that promise. They're back at Mount Sinai, Mount Horeb. And that's where this rock is, and that's where the people are going to be, though they are very close by. So Moses did this in the sight of the elders of Israel. And he called the place Masa and Meribah. That would be like the hyphenated thing in English, Masa Meribah. It means, Masah means testing, ones who are testing, and Meribah, that word Reeb, Meribah, is in that 
weren't the ones who were bringing a complaint against. So he's naming it after, from Moses' perspective, what happens. This is where the people quarreled. This is where the people brought their lawsuits. This is where the people tested God. And yet God provide, uh, provided for them. Moses called the place Masamera because the Israelites quarreled and because they tested the Lord, saying, Is the Lord among us or not? So again, this gives you an attitude into, or gives you a mindset into the attitude of the people. It's kind of like them, them questioning, Is the Lord among us or not? shows you that they're still not getting it fully. There's a pillar of cloud, a pillar of fire by day. They got up and ate manna that morning that God had miraculously provided. When they came to the spot where they wanted some water and they needed some water, immediately their first response was to, to bring charges, to quarrel, to get antagonistic, rather than, and, and to wonder, is the Lord among us or not? It's like, well, we've got the manna, we've got the pillar of cloud, the pillar of fire leading us, you know, we've got all that, but we don't have water, so is God even here? You know, like, you get the sense of, it's almost like just this diva attitude on the people, like, you know, what is it, what, God, are you here or not? You know, it's this, it's this kind of, that's what Moses is getting kind of ticked off about it. He'll, he'll lay it down later in Deuteronomy when he recounts this and he'll kind of chastise the people for their attitude. But at this point, remember, God is providing for them. He's working with them. He's being generous with these people because they've just come out of 400 years of being slaves. They've just come out of having no identity other than a few loose oral traditions, maybe some knowledge of kind of a long time ago there was a guy named Abraham and God said something to him, but you know, we've been in Egypt for 400 years. So God's rebuilding them. He's teaching them. He's patiently leading them in the wilderness. And there's a lot of lessons, a lot of applications that can be drawn from this, particularly about the people's attitude. Moses' response as a leader, if you've ever been a leader, your first response a lot of times is to get frustrated with people when they don't get it. You know, to get, Moses had had a whole experience at this mountain a long time ago. He had had an entire face-to-face -face encounter with God at this mountain before he ever went to Egypt to bring the people out. He had history with God. The people didn't have that history. I mean, they'd seen God's miracles, they'd seen everything, but, but it, was, it wasn't that intimate face-to-face -face experience that Moses has had. So it's easy for Moses to get a little frustrated with the people. And the same thing if you're a leader, whether you're a leader of a church, whether you're a parent, whether you're a manager on the job, whatever, it's easy to get frustrated with people under you. It's like, why aren't you getting this? You should get this already. And one of the things that I think this text speaks to is the heart of God in those situations where people need to be brought along, sometimes they need to be brought along. Now, sometimes they need to be smacked in the butt and said, get going. But that's not this time. That'll be later. And God will do that. But right now, at the beginning, there's this tenderness and gentleness like a shepherd. And that's what God describes himself to the people as, their shepherd. What do shepherds do? They take sheep around through the rocky places in the wilderness. They have their staff. What's a staff for? Well, really, it's for nudging the sheep, and sometimes it's for smacking the sheep. And sometimes it's for pushing the sheep, and sometimes it's for hooking them and pulling them out of a hole. Sometimes the staff has many purposes. And it's the same thing with God and his presence here with Israel in this beginning formative stages. So now, same thing, same place, same location, another story that's going to come in this chapter of God. Um, not just providing for them uh, physically, but now he's also going to begin to shape them into his army. Remember, they came out of Egypt marching in ranks as, as, as an army, even though they barely had any weapons. And I mean, their, their swords would have been whatever they made from whatever was around. 
you know, you know, cloud, cloud instrument uh, implements or you know, a knife that they sharpen and lengthen or, or something that they've just been able to make. They aren't high tech. They aren't a fighting force. But God is slowly, again, shaping them into because they eventually are going to be his means of judging the Canaanites who are currently in the land that God had promised to Abraham. And for 400 years, while Israel has been in captivity, God has been waiting to bring judgment on these Canaanites because of their wickedness and their evil. For God to come and judge them earlier would have been unjust because their evil, their wickedness would not have yet reached the measure at which judgment was required. There was still time. And now it's like as, as the time where Israel is coming out into freedom is the time at which the Canaanites are going to be ready to be judged by God's army. And it's not a paradigm in the Old Testament. It's not a, a permission for, oh, well, the Israelites always, God's on their side. He's not. He's not always on their side. And he doesn't give them carte blanche to wage holy war. There are very specific and limited times, and it's only twice in all of Israel's history that God sent them to what we would call a, a holy war or a God-sanctioned war of, of conquest. It's, it's not an Old Testament phenomenon that goes throughout all time. Very limited, very specific. And they're going to be the instruments that God uses to enact this specific judgment, just like God will use Assyria to come and judge the northern kingdom of Israel later in their history. And then God will use the Babylonians to come and judge the southern kingdom of Judah and destroy his own temple because of their wickedness. So God doesn't play favorites in the Old Testament just willy-nilly. He, he uses people to judge other people's but it's not, um, there, there's, there's no sense of, like Romans will say, God shows no favoritism. It's based on relationship, covenant, holiness, and the uh, level of wanton evil within a society, how God responds in judgment. So, verse 8, the Amalekites, and these are, a, these are a nomadic tribal people. They're, they're descended down from Esau. Uh, so they're kind of cousins to the Israelites, but they were, they're not a mighty people. They don't have their own city or their own capital or their state. They, they, were, um, they, did, they were known for raiding parties. They used camel. They were one of the innovators of using camels for raiding parties because they could travel long distances in the desert. They could raid and uh, uh, attack people, travelers, and then flee back into the desert on their camel, and the people couldn't follow because their horses or donkeys couldn't go that far. So the Amalekites were like these desert mothers. They were, they were thieves, not thieves, they were killers. They were people that would waylay travelers on the road and kill them and take their stuff. Okay, so not like Israel's marching through, and this, this is not a turf war. All right? This is people who prey on those who are weak and traveling and, uh, and at their mercy. So the Amalekites came and attacked the Israelites at Rephidim. Moses said to Joshua, this is the first time Joshua's mentioned in Scripture, by the way. This is the first we ever hear of Joshua. He's going to be a key figure. He gets a whole book named after him. Moses said to Joshua, Choose some of our men and go fight the Amalekites. Tomorrow I'll stand on top of the hill with the staff of God in my hands. So Joshua fought the Amalekites as Moses had ordered. And Moses, Aaron, and Hur went to the top of the hill. They went up on the hill. As long as Moses held up his hands held up the staff, the Israelites were winning. Whenever he lowered his hands, the Amalekites were winning. When Moses' hands grew tired, they took a stone and they put it under him, and he sat on it. In other words, they gave him a little stool to sit on. And Aaron and Hur held his hands up, one on one side, one on the other, so that his hands remained steady till sunset. 
So Joshua overcame, or literally it's mowed down. That word means to, to knock over, or to, to mow down is a great word. Um, so Joshua mowed down the Amalekite army by the sword. Then Moses, the Lord said to Moses, write this on a scroll as something to be remembered. And make sure that Joshua hears it. Literally, the Hebrew says, put it in the ears of Joshua. So make sure that Joshua knows this. Because I will completely blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. Moses built an altar and called it Yahweh Nisi, or the Lord is my banner. He said, for hands were lifted up to the throne of the Lord. The Lord will be at war against the Amalekites from generation to generation. So in this battle, it's, you get the idea of like two armies fighting each other. I always picture it this way. Moses up on the hill and he's watching over this vast plain and these two armies and kind of like in Braveheart or something. We're going to each other. Um, but it's not like that. It's, it, Moses is overlooking. He's just on a high, higher place and just elevated so he can see and they can see him. And it's not like thousands and thousands and thousands of troops. You know, he tells, he tells Joshua, get some of the men and take them to go fight. This raiding party is coming. You know, you can see them from the distance. Anybody see Mad Max? Just came out in the Mad Max movie. So there was a part where they were watching and they could see the, the raiding parties coming. Like, that's a great parallel to this or the way we think of it. Because they're in the desert trying to, you know, get water and survive and be free. And all of a sudden these people are coming and attacking them. And there weren't as many motors or mohawks or anything back in this time. But... It's the same kind of thing. There are these, these, these murderous people preying on this nation of slaves that have just come out of Egypt while they're at their weakest. And so Joshua, Moses tells Joshua, take, grab some men, get some people, go fight them. I'll stand up on the hill, I'll watch, I'll make sure that we win. Moses has this confidence that God never tells him to do this. In the text, God doesn't say, hey Moses, go take the staff. Moses, you see that his will and God's will are starting to mesh to a much more intimate degree. And his innate trust in God is starting to blend with his realization also that the people need to do something. It's not like the people just stand there and go, okay, God, do your thing. And God rains down fire and everybody dies. It's the people are having to realize we are to become a people. We're to become a nation. We're going to defend ourselves. But ultimately, our strength or the source of our victory is going to have to come from God. These are, these are professional robbers, professional marauders, professional killers that are about to attack them like they've done so many other people. Like they'll continue to do throughout Israel's history. They won't even be, be finally defeated ultimately until the time of King Saul. And even after a remnant will remain and one of the descendants will be a guy named Haman who will try to wipe out the Jews in the Persian kingdom. So they will go on to be a thorn in the side of Israel for centuries. But at this point, they, they, Israel shouldn't win this battle. They, they have no weapons, no nothing. I mean, what little swords and implements they have or whatever they could grab from Egypt on the way out or whatever they've been able to make themselves, they shouldn't win this. And the only reason they do win this is because of that staff that is held up to the Lord as the banner, the rallying standard. Um, Think of, think of the, what is it, the Iwo Jima statue? The Marines are pushing up the flag, right? Like everything that that symbolizes in the minds of patriots, that's kind of what God is doing, what Moses is doing here. As long as that standard is flying, we have a chance. God is with us. 
And so Moses is standing there and he's holding it up and realizing, yes, only as the people rally around God's presence will they have the ability and, and the, uh, the wherewithal to be victorious. If the staff falls, the presence of God symbolically is gone. The people try to do it on their own without the leadership of Moses and the presence of God. They got not hope at all. So it's this, it, it's, it's, we got to be balanced when we're reading the story. It's not this magical thing, like the staff itself was magic. It was the theological, symbolic nature of all of this. And it was all being done for future generations to know about, to look back on. That's why God tells them, write it down. Put it in the ears of Joshua. Make sure people know this, what happens. So they're, it, it's not... Sometimes you hear this preached, and it's, it's about, you know, we got to pray without ceasing. When your hands get tired, get somebody to hold them up so you can keep praying. Yeah, sort of, that's kind of what's going on, but that's not the main thrust of this chapter. The main thrust of this chapter is God had made a promise to create and lead his people as their sovereign king. And a sovereign king is the one who, who, who presides, who leads the people in the battle, who, who raises the standard, who they rally to, who they, who they fight for. So it's a much more, uh, it, it's bigger. We, we, you don't want to take this and just personalize it into, you know, who are the Aaron and who are in my life who are holding up my hands. I mean, you can do that, but that's kind of allegor or fabulizing what was really a redemptive historical event in the history of Israel, which is God was keeping his word to provide for his people, and he was empowering them to defend themselves from overwhelming odds. He was with them through his presence, and Moses doing that, you know, Moses, even when he gets tired, it's like they put a rock so he could sit, right, and then Aaron and her on each side can kind of take an arm or hold his elbow, and they can stand, and all day that staff can remain up even when Moses' arms start to get tired. Not because he was old or frail or weak or anything. It's just nobody can hold their arms up for more than 20, 30 minutes before you start getting really tired. So all of that to say, God's brought his people out, and he, they're in the wilderness. It doesn't look like they're going to be able to survive. It doesn't look like they're going to be able to defend themselves. But yet, in the midst of that, God does both. He provides both of those things. He provides provision for their sustenance, for them and their animals. He, he has bread every morning with the manna, and now they have water flowing from a rock in the middle of the Sinai Desert, and also from physical, from earthly attacks. He's providing for them. He's empowering them to be able to overcome in the face of danger. All of this, it's like this is boot camp. God is preparing his people to be his people, to be a nation. The difference between them and all the other nations of the world is all the other nations are going to have kings to rally around. And what God's going to tell them is, I'm your ultimate king. I'm your ultimate sovereign. Rally around me, and I'll make sure that no harm, that nobody destroys you, that nobody defeats you, that, that, that you don't starve to death, that you don't curse to death. Um, I'll protect you. And that's what's going to come full-fledged in the covenant that God's going to make with them in two chapters at Mount Sinai. When they actually get there and the formal covenant ceremony happens, all of those provisions are going to be spelled out in complete detail. And, and it's like all of this is going to come into focus in terms of who they are to be as his people. So next chapter, Moses is going to have a reunion with his father-in-law. And then they are all the people who come to Mount Sinai. And the 
the crux, the summit of Exodus, fittingly, takes place at the summit of Mount Sinai. The, the mountaintop of the book is the literal mountaintop of Horeb or Mount Sinai, and that will be in two weeks. So, we're done for today. Come back next week, bring a friend, tell people, grab a card before you leave. Uh, if you're online, hop online, connect with me on, on the um, iTunes, Facebook, all that kind of stuff, and we'll keep doing this as long as you keep coming. So have a great week.